Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The Viewing Booth recounts a unique encounter between a filmmaker and a viewer. Exploring the ways meaning is attributed to nonfiction images in today's day and age. In a lab like location, Maya Levy, a young Jewish American woman, watches videos portraying life in the occupied West Bank while verbalizing her thoughts and feelings in real time. The film is called The Viewing Booth, and it examines this idea of what we see, how we see it and how we contextualize it in this image-based information world that we live in. We're joined today by the director of this wonderful documentary film, and that would be Ra'anan Alexandrovitz. Ra'anan, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. It's so good to be here again. The viewing booth is such an interesting way of unpacking how we take in information and how we contextualize it. Tell me what inspired you to take on this particular project. I think that after the release of the Law and These Parts and after the, the, the kind of engagement campaign that I did with it, um, mostly in Israel, but not only, I fell into some sort of a crisis where I, I became very aware of a discrepancy between the way that the film was received and the conversation around the film and the reality which the film portrayed, which actually continued to get worse and worse. And I think that happens to many filmmakers or media makers or people who um, work with a medium in order to achieve some sort of, sort of political or social impact that we question ourselves, is our work working? Um, so I fell into this um, period where I started thinking about documentation in general, looking back decades, trying to see, not, not at my work, but at the work of others, trying to understand what impact it had. And if it didn't, if it did, how did it achieve it? If it didn't, why didn't it achieve it? And out of those thoughts, I came to the understanding that the one big mystery for me is what people actually get from these images, images that are supposed to expose us to reality, uh, images that are supposed to facilitate some sort of social or political change. I, I went through a period of trying various ways of um, using the, the tools of documentary to, to, try to, to, to try to find a way to express and explore this idea of what are people seeing in nonfiction images, more specifically, what are people seeing in nonfiction images that they might not really want to see. And finally, I ended up with this form um, of, of the viewing booth and asking people to verbalize their responses, their thoughts, their feeling while viewing images, record that and uh, try to, to, to make a film that, that helps audiences um, understand something about that. So Ronan, let's take a half a step back and describe the logistics of the way that you went about making this film because it's an unconventional approach it's an unconventional story idea to begin with in terms of documentary film but it also takes an unconventional approach to telling the story talk a little bit about that 
Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I like being described as unconventional because it is in both in form and structure. So the viewing booth is a film that that looks at how we view nonfiction images. Uh, more specifically, how do we view nonfiction images that um, are difficult for us to view or, or that go against our worldviews or our, our beliefs and are painful for us? And more specifically, it's about one woman, Maya Levy, um, a young Jewish American, um, very pro-Israel, and how she views uh, images of the military occupation, the Israeli military occupation in the West Bank, how she makes sense of them, how she understands them. But I'm, I'm sure your listeners are asking, so how do you film that? Like, that doesn't sound like a film. It's a very intimate film. It takes place in this closed space, which is the viewing booth in which Maya um, watches these videos while she's filmed and verbalizes her responses. She's in conversation with the images. Um, um, these kind of pretty painful images from the military occupation. She's in conversation with the images. She's in conversation with me, who I'm present sort of outside of the viewing booth. She allows us to sort of enter her head and understand how she views the images. She verbalizes her experience. She watches a number of videos and then that ends. And, and then half a year later, she comes back for another uh, filming session like this. But, but this time she's not looking at these images again, but rather we're, she's viewing how she viewed them half a year earlier and reflects upon um, her own viewing of the images. And, and that's how this portrait or psychological portrait of, of, of a viewing is created. What's interesting about the whole idea behind this, and it seems to me so core particularly for a documentary filmmaker such as yourself, is to try to get to some essential truths or essential perspective on whatever you're talking about, whatever your film subject might be, and how important it is, I assume, I'm making some assumptions here, into your, you, the way you view the world, your, the way you view your art, and, and also kind of the psychology of documentary filmmakers, at least it's been my experience. Whatever they're doing, they're trying to get it to some essence of some version of the truth, some truth. And so how fundamental this is for us as the viewer to be able to understand that that is coming from a place of a true seeker of, of truth. And so this is critically important. This whole project, this idea behind it is so critically important in a, in a much broader sense. And the other part of it is as we were watching Maya one of the things we as human beings have, have through the, the ages have become very good at is reading faces. This is one of the things that separates us from, from most, most of the rest of the animal kingdom is our ability to understand facial expressions and just sort of pick up information, watching her, watching what she's watching. The other thing that I would like to bring into the conversation is she has access to about 40 videos and it's completely up to her as to how she watches it for how long, what she does in the watching of those different videos. So I just wanna set the groundwork and I, I, I set that as a premise, how important this is, not just for this particular film project of the viewing booth, but how important it is for us. Yeah, I mean, this, is, this, is a, this question has a few important aspects um, regarding the film. So 
first of all, what you were speaking about before, the, the bring, uh, you evoked the word truth. Um, other people might um, also use the word, uh, the word reality, which is also in itself uh, a very, <laughs> becomes a contentious. I mean, I would not say that fiction, you know, people who make fiction are not also seeking the truth. That what, what I think separates nonfiction from fiction is a kind of essential knowledge or essential belief that the viewer, that the audience holds regarding the materials that they're seeing. If they, if they, if they identify what they're seeing as nonfiction, they assume a direct connection between the images they're seeing and something that takes place in the real world. So if they see a child crying or a child waking up at gunpoint, if to refer to an image that we see in the viewing booth, and they see it in a fiction film, there's this internal assumption that this is a child actor that came to the scene and had all these protections. And then somehow it was made that he wouldn't be traumatized by being waking up at gunpoint in order to film this fiction scene. Whereas in a nonfiction image, the audience understands that this child has been woken up now. This child is crying now. It's a real child. It's not, it's not happening now, of course, but this crying actually happened in the real world. Now that is, if to use a very crude term, that is the production value of the nonfiction image, this belief, this, this type of belief, this type of inherent belief. And one of the things that the viewing booth is bringing up, and I think we should be questioning, is if in the, in the, contemporary nonfiction environment, we are not eroding this resource of belief in nonfiction images. And that is, as the, as the border between fiction and nonfiction becomes more and more blurred for several reasons, we, we can talk about that more later, audience seems to um, you know, replace that, that, that in, inherent belief in nonfiction that belonged to the 20th century in almost inherent disbelief in nonfiction that we have now. What, what's this image? What, where's the manipulation? Is this real? And this is especially true for images that go against our worldviews or our, our very fundamental beliefs. And that's what we see in the viewing group. Now, you, you also mentioned Maya's eyes, Maya's face, as she, Maya's face as she watches. An interesting story about that, where before the film was finished, I mean, this is, this is a very constructed film, but also a very fragile film. A film, as I was making it, I was worried about betraying, about betrayal. I was worried about, well, I, I was showing Maya the film all along the process, so I had a sense of what she feels. And this was, of course, most important. But I was also worried about betraying these images that are in the film, that are images that I find essential and important almost sacred images and I I respect I, I respect I highly respect the people who created these images for their activism for their bravery for their using a camera as their defense in, in a dangerous situation I was worried if this pe these people watching the film might feel that what I did as a filmmaker is to just construct a platform for for deconstructing their work I was worried about the Betelem, the, 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 the human rights organization that facilitates the, the filming and the dissemination of these images. Would, would this organization that I had respect feel that I betrayed them? So, I mean, this is my, I, I digress a little bit, but before the film was finished, I went and showed it to all the people who 
um, whose videos appear in it, all the Palestinians whose videos appear in it. They watched it and I was watching them watching it. This wasn't filmed, but it was kind of a view booth, the sequel, right? They later said, you know, we are very optimistic about this woman. We're sure that she will come around to our side. And, and I asked them, you realize that um, she's not saying anything. She actually, everything she says almost is doubt your work or doubt the authenticity of it. So how do you come to that conclusion? And they said, oh, well, we're used to that. We hear that every day, all the time. That's, that's nothing's new um, to us in what she's saying, but look at her eyes. Look how she's looking. Look how she's grappling with it. Look how she needs to come to terms with what she's seeing. Now we see something that has a future. And that was very enlightening because the film might carry for some people some sort of pessimistic message. That's how, how can we convince people with images when people are now so sophisticated about deconstructing images they don't want to see, reframing them and everything we see in the film. But perhaps even the fact that Maya actually needs to look at this, she doesn't turn away from it. She's a pretty amazing viewer in the way that, I mean, she's very far from me politically. We don't, we don't agree on the, on the reality. We don't agree on what's going on in Palestine. I have to say that she didn't, she was a viewer that didn't turn away from images that were uncomfortable, for, but rather dealt with them and allowed us in a very authentic way to sort of look at these mechanisms of how we deal with images. And I'm saying we, because even if I'm separated from her politically, I learned from her viewing how I do the same thing with images that are uncomfortable for me or images that come from, from sources that are uncomfortable for me. And that's also why the Hebrew title of the film is Mirror. While Maya is very far from me ideologically, I still see her as a mirror for myself as a viewer. Remind our listeners we're speaking with the director of the film, The Viewing Booth, Ra'anan Alexandrowitz. And the, in what you're describing, and this is, I think, an important distinction for me, is that you can recognize something in the moment that you're watching it as that reality, that those children were under distress, they've been awakened from sleep. And you can, you can recognize in that moment, that, that reality and feel that way about it. But it's this greater kind of understanding of the world, this sort of macro view of the world. She can, she can appreciate the stress of that for that family in that moment, but her worldview doesn't reconcile with this is part of a greater injustice. That's correct. And, and I think what I try to show in the film is exactly what happens then. So what happens when we're looking at something and it, I mean, she's activated by this emotionally. Right. Um, it's distressing for her. But as you say, she's also thinking in a greater construct, which makes her want to sort of resist what she's seeing. But she's not doing that by either turning it off or just saying, well, I don't need to watch this. What she's doing, what we all do is we start to reframe the image. And sometimes we reframe the image by evoking stuff from that's not part of it. And sometimes by evoking things that are part of the image. And, and again, I'll give an example from the film. So the central video, the central image that the film explores is, 
is a video, it is a nine minute video shot by a Palestinian resident of the town of Hebron. And I believe it's three or 4 a.m. Soldiers, Israeli soldiers knock on the family door, come in and conduct a nine minute search where they ask everyone to be woken up, children, grownups. Um, they go through, through the closets. And um, all this is filmed in one single shot, um, and, and one single continuous shot by the father of the family. The strong thing about it is there's no open graphic violence in this video, but there's something very violent about it because of the normality of it, because soldiers can arrive with no warrant and with no reason, take everyone out of bed, take photographs of them, do basically whatever they want, and this is normal. Now, so Maya is looking at this video and myself having the political views and beliefs that I, that I have, I would have wanted her to actually sort of zoom out and see this video in the context of 50 years of military occupation, over 50 years of military occupation, in which every night you have these types of home invasions. And that's recorded and that's known and there are testimonies about it by soldiers and, and so on. And I would want her to contextualize as a viewer this and say, wow, this is not only one impossible situation, it's part of an impossible situation. So that's the context that I would have hoped. And I, I say nothing while she views it about this, but that's the context I would have hoped for her to have. So I call it like a zoom out. I want her to zoom out and see not one night, not nine minutes in one night, but 50 years of this. But she actually does something else. She, and if, if I stay with the cinematic metaphor here, the, so she doesn't want to zoom out, but she wants to pull the camera back as if on a dolly or something and, and just expose the fact that the father of the family is filming his children waking up at gunpoint. That's because if we think about it, the image of a close-up of a child waking up at gunpoint is one is different than the image of a father filming their child waking up. It, it creates a very different emotion. And so when, when she evokes the idea of who's holding the camera, why is he doing it? How is it that they're allowing him to film? But she makes, she makes herself aware of him, of him filming, and that sort of reframes the images. So we're, we're kind of fighting over what's the boundary of, what are the proper way to expand the boundaries of the frame? And I think that this is something that, so I explained a specific example here, but this is really something that we do all the time now. We have, I think that critical viewing of images has done a huge service for history, for being able to know, not just believe images, but sort of put them in context and be able to understand what an image really represents. It doesn't necessarily always represent exactly what's in it. As you mentioned before, the child working up, it sometimes represents something more. And, we, and critical theory taught us how to read images and really understand them. But we might be in a situation now where the critical viewing sort of went out of, went too far. And it's become like just our default mode of viewing images. We no longer will necessarily see the child, but immediately start to analyze who's holding the camera and why and how can they do that and what are their motivations. And then we, we sometimes, I'm quoting a, a Palestinian scholar, Dr. Raif Zrik, who in one of the Q&A sessions after one of the panels about the film said, maybe we've arrived at a point in time where the critical act is actually just to zoom in and look at the child's face 
and just try to feel it for a second before we start taking apart power relations and, and media manipulations and all that. So what I think what I, I tried to do with this film, I tried to perhaps introduce to the viewers a language of self-reflection, not only about not only reflection about images, but also self-reflection of us as viewers. Or if we use kind of like very zeitgeisty terms, like it seems that fake news is not only in the in fake media, but also something that is in a type of viewership that can actually make the truth into fake. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's just, and this is just my perspective as in that scene where one of the, I think the older boy, I think the 11 year old is, they, when he pulls the covers off of himself and looks over to see the soldiers standing there, it, for me, the look in his eyes to me was fear and anger at the same time. He looked angry as he kind of shot a look back at, at these other soldiers who were standing around him. For me, as I was watching that and I was hearing what Maya was saying, I was thinking, well, just what if, what if this was the Palestinian Authority coming into an Israeli home and doing this? Would it would be the same if this was, if in the Jim Crow era, African-Americans were filming the, the sons of the Confederacy coming into their sharecropper home in order to find out, to identify anybody in the household. Part of this feels like this is kind of a, a bigger effort to just sort of map out all of the different people in these particular, you know, in these homes in order to be able to further, to be able to basically keep an eye on everyone. So, yeah, so, so um, to touch on a couple of things that you said, first of all, uh, it's not really the topic of the conversation, but the Palestinian authority um, has no authority to go into Israeli homes. So that situation would never happen. Um, that kind of goes back to the law in these parts, but the Palestinian Authority is put in place by the Israeli uh, military government and sort of it's under it's in, under the law of the military government and they only have jurisdiction over Palestinians. So that situation, that, that other side could never happen, at least not in, in, in the kind of world we live in now. But, but you are very correct in uh, pointing to what are the real meanings of that home invasion. Um, that home invasion is meant to take photographs, possibly to create this large database. Although some of the soldiers that have testified about having par uh, taken part in these things um, have said, well, sometimes no one even takes the pictures from us. And after a few days, we just erase them from our phones. Because the other thing is the creation of feeling of being surveilled all the time. So the moment so what these children are growing up with is the knowledge that the military can be at any place at any time and see them. There's no restriction. And, and that is the feeling of being watched. And, and that is a massive, massive tool of control. And I believe that, that that's why it's um, being cultivated. And so, so in a way, I mean, one, one thing about this film that I feel I have to say, I don't think this is a good film about the situation in Palestine or about the occupation because it takes a very narrow it does it's a film while the law in these parts was this kind of epic uh, exploration of the legal system of the occupation which again is not the whole thing but that's still like a, a big chunk of it this is really this film points um directs the viewer to look at something 
much more specific. And that is how do we watch the images that, co that come from the occupation, the images that we as, as players in a democratic society, for instance, here in the US, players in a democratic society that funds this in a certain way or that, that assists this um, or, or that allows for this to happen, how do we think about these images? So in a way, it's not really a film that gives any explanations about the situation itself. And I'm happy that we have the, the opportunity to clarify a few things in, in, in this conversation, but it's more a film that asks us how we watch these kinds of images. You know, there's a show here in the United States on PBS called The 90s. And the premise behind it was to give every everyone who they could reasonably give video cameras to, to give them to them all around the world and for them to film their circumstances. I don't know if you are familiar with the show or heard of it, but it was a groundbreaking show. And it kind of anticipated the internet and, and YouTube in a way. Right. I mean, it's a um, witness, the organization that uh, Peter Gabriel facilitated. That was, and, and, and Betselem does this work in the witness, in the tradition of what witness um, started in the, in, the, in the end of the 90s. And the premise was, if only people could see. Yes. The world would change, right? Because the premise is everyone wants the world to be better, right? W which actually... They, they might not, but let's say that's the premise. Everyone wants to, so, so if, only could, if, only could people, if only people could see how difficult is the situation of other people, they, they make the change happen. And, and 20 years later or 25 years later, we're in a time that we are questioning that because that doesn't always work like that. But there are a few things that we have to look at. We have to look at the media environment. We have to look at what people really want or don't want in terms of change. Um, you know, it goes back even to the very early times of social documentary, Grierson, and so on. So that the idea was to show one half of the society how the other half lives. But, but since this seems sometimes to work, and you know, with the, with look at the, the images, <clears throat> look, at the, look at the video of the murder of George Floyd filmed by a young woman, very courageous, did, you know, the, the, the probably one of the most important, the most important documentary uh, work of, of the last year and work that evoked a huge change in a way, right? No doubt or no skepticism about the importance of images and images that can show us what people don't want us, what the authorities don't want us to see. Or, But on the other hand, these images are at the moment in a certain kind of environment. So when Maya, for instance, in, in one, of the, one of the moments in the film, she evokes this idea. Yeah, it's very painful, she says. It's very hard, what I'm seeing. But what if there was a complaint that there's a bomb in this house and they're just coming to check out the complaint, right? And uh, it's pretty evident in the footage that that's not, not what's happening because if the soldiers would have been really worried about something being detonated, they would not be walking around there like they're on, on, you know, on the boardwalk. They're just walking through there. But I ask her, I, there I sort of push a little further. Um, and I ask, why, why are you saying this? Because you're usually referring to things that are in the image. What, where did you get this bomb idea from? And she, and she, in her very authentic way, reflects about it. And then she says, you know what? I've been watching this show on Netflix called Fauda. 
It's actually a fiction thriller about the occupation. And that's where I saw this idea of the bomb, which, which now affects the way that I see this nonfiction footage. So that's just one example of the environment that we're in, an environment of where fiction and nonfiction are both on the Netflix um, interface saying this is both 95% um, good for you, right? Like this is what you should, what you should be watching. So, and there are many reasons. How did reality television affect the way that people watch nonfiction images? How do new, um, you know, new, new ways of expression of documentary filmmakers, um, you know, you just now, I mean, we're just now seeing the whole debate about the Roadrunner um, film. Um, so new, new, um, new techniques that filmmakers like myself introduce into nonfiction also might be sometimes eroding the, but, but, but that's what I call environment. Environment is not one thing. It's, um, it's the whole environment of, of uh, media and images that we live in. And we have to take into consideration when we are, assume our viewers. Right. Well, and I'll let you go. <clears throat> Thank you for all this time you spent. But there's one last thing I just want to add into this conversation. And that is when I watch something like this and I try to be, I try to be as um, objective and that's a loaded word, but I try, I try to filter out as much as I can and just watch it. But at the end of the day, oftentimes videos that are, I will look at whose interest is being served. In other words, in this power dynamic, and in the case of watching those soldiers walk through that home, the predominant political power structure in Israel is that that is appropriate. What they're doing, it's appropriate. For That's me, true. that is basically incorrect. I don't care where it happens. It doesn't matter. But the idea that to do what they were doing is somehow, some way, at the end of the day, justifiable. And it's okay with the political power structure that is, that is the predominant political perspective is just wrong. And so for me, it's wrong. And also I'm a human being. And that to, I'm more human being than I am American, where I am, you know, a, 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 the host of a radio show. At the end of the day, my predominant affiliation is as a human being. And I think a lot of this is also kind of filtered through a religious context. I, in America, these people in America who are strongly evangelical believe the craziest imaginable and believe it and are willing to act on it. So there's all these different layers. And I, I feel like I'm overcomplicating everything here. But there is something to all of that. I do believe yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, I agree with you. And I think you touched on a very important point that we have to sort of stop, go back there and ask ourselves, what allows this kind of situation to be acceptable? Yes. Um, in, in, even in, in the mind of one individual watching this video, and I've, heard, I've seen this happen many times and sort of rationalizing and saying, yeah, yes, it's terrible, but, you know, there's always a but. There's always like some political way of rationalizing it. And I think that's, a, that's, that's a, if we could catch that point and be able to 
just stop there and say, no, you know what? That's not acceptable. Let's stop. Let's stop it there. And then maybe try to imagine another way instead of just rationalizing it and then um, go, go through more of the same. Um, so I, I, I agree with you there. Um, but I think, and, and going back to the film, my belief is that there is a need for, you know, I mean, it's been very, what, you, what we call media literacy has been, um, uh, um, you know, very prevalent in the last years or even more a decade or two. I think we, everyone understands it's very important to educate people to understand media and be able to read it critically. I think the other part of that, which the viewing booth tries to highlight is that we also have to learn to understand ourselves as viewers of media. That's the other part of media literacy. Um, and, and perhaps, it's, and it's like the dark side of the moon. I mean, that's the part that's harder for us to see because it's something that's in us um, and how do we observe that? And with the viewing booth, I sort of try to make the first step. I mean, other people are taking other first steps, but I'm hoping that there would be more of this, um, that media literacy would become complete when we um, also learn better to understand ourselves as viewers. Well, this is, I mean, this is such a fascinating conversation for me and, and that I feel like I could talk to you for a lot longer, but I'm gonna let you go because um, thank you. I just wanna thank you so much. Uh, the film again is called The Viewing Booth and Ra'anan Alexanderwitz has been kind enough to spend a lot of time with us today to talk about his, this remarkable documentary film and <clears throat> be looking for it. I believe it's out uh, on August 6th, available here in the United States. And uh, I also recommend that people go back and look at your previous work, including the law in these parts, but there's other work of yours. Uh, and I wanna thank you. And I thank you not only for being here, but I thank you for your work. And uh, I hope to see you again sometime. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music